Welcome to The Bench Press. I'm Jess Coleman, here alongside my co-host, Bobby Denault. Last Wednesday, a Quinnipiac poll found that just 30% of registered voters approve of the Supreme Court, the lowest approval rating Quinnipiac has ever recorded since it began asking the question nearly 20 years ago. And it's not hard to see why. Under the leadership of Chief Justice John Roberts, the Supreme Court has issued a slew of rulings that have completely restructured the political and legal landscape on everything from abortion to campaign finance law to guns to separation of church and state, and much, much more. These rulings have essentially cut out American citizens from having any meaningful role in the decisions that shape their lives, with the traditional levers of power from voting to political activism completely co-opted by six arch-right conservative justices, five of whom we should say were appointed by a president who lost the popular vote. With our political leaders failing to offer any solutions to break this intractable dynamic, many Americans are asking, what's next? What's the point of even heading to the polls if Samuel Alito will always have the final say? Is there anything we can do to wrestle back control of our democracy? We've been asking these questions ourselves, and that's why we want to talk to Christopher Sprigman, a professor of law at NYU and a leading scholar on the issue of jurisdiction stripping. While a lot of attention has been given to the idea of court expansion, or adding several liberal justices to the court to change the balance of power, not as much has been said about stripping the court of its jurisdiction or its power to hear certain cases in the first place. Is this allowed? If so, how could Congress do it? And most importantly, is it really a sustainable solution to the problem? With those questions in mind, we welcome Professor Sprigman to the bench press. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right into it. I think for a lot of our listeners, the concept of jurisdiction stripping probably haven't heard much about it. So can you describe for us just at a high level uh, what it is as a conceptual matter? Sure. So it comes from the Constitution, and specifically it comes from Article 3 of the Constitution, which does two things that are relevant to jurisdiction stripping. One, um, it gives Congress the power to create lower federal courts. So Congress has the power to create lower federal courts and it has the power to limit their jurisdiction. It has actually, from the very beginning, limited their jurisdiction. The, 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 the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts is established by statute. So from the Judiciary Act of 1789 on. The second thing that the Constitution's Article Three does is it gives Congress the power to make exceptions and to impose regulations on the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. And that's extremely important because this virtually all of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is appellate. It has very narrow original jurisdiction over, for example, boundary disputes between states. Um, but virtually all of its jurisdiction is appellate and that appellate jurisdiction that the Constitution makes subject to exceptions and regulations that the Congress can apply. So Congress has tremendous power to shape the federal court's jurisdiction. And I argue in a paper in the New York University Law Review and in a bunch of writing I've done, um, that power gives them um, a real say in how judicial review works in this country. They, they don't make as much of that power as they might but it's there for them to use if they wish. So just going through like how this would work. So I think, you know, the way we think of a lot of people think of judicial review in this country and just lawmaking in general is Congress passes a law and someone can challenge it and has to go through, you know, the review of the court. Samuel Alito has to give his opinion on it. 
Uh, so what you're saying is basically, you know, say that Congress wants to pass an assault weapons ban. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know the state of the law handed down by the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment. You're saying they could put a provision in such a law, such as an assault weapons ban, saying this cannot be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Is that basically how it would work? Well, not just the Supreme Court. They could say it won't be reviewed by the federal courts. Um, they could also strip state jurisdiction if they were afraid of a state court um, trying to basically overturn the assault weapons ban. So Congress has power to qualify judicial review. In other words, to to specify instances in which their Congress's interpretation of the meaning of the Constitution will, will have the final say. Now, this doesn't mean that you know, Congress can overturn judicial review entirely, um, but Congress can, in fact, accept um, certain uh, uh, issues or certain types of cases from the scope of judicial review. That's what the Constitution's Article Three gives them the power to do. I would just point out that recently they did this. Um, mm-hmm. So the Inflation Reduction Act, which got passed last year, in that act, one of the goodies that allowed that act to pass was that Joe Manchin got his pipeline. Uh, mm-hmm. funded. And there's a provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that strips judicial review of the pipeline. So, you know, for example, environmental challenges to the pipeline are not going to slow it down. Um, so Congress can use it. They're aware of their jurisdiction stripping power. Um, and they use it in that instance. It's a, you know, you, you might not love that particular use of it, or you might, depending on how you feel about that pipeline, but uh, it's certainly there for them to use. For background, that's sort of how me and you met when this came up yeah. and you started tweeting about jurisdiction stripping and I started responding to you. Um, it, it's amazing because what was your take on that before we get into the law a little bit more? Because, you know, I think when people talk about the idea of stripping jurisdiction from the Supreme Court, if you did it for something like an assault weapons ban, it would be like headline news. Like, oh, my God, like we're taking on the Supreme Court. Yes. But then this just like got in there and no one heard about it. No one said anything. So what is your take on just like the politics of this? Why is it that you know, we can't confront the Supreme Court when it comes to the Second Amendment. But for if it's for a pipeline for Joe Manchin, no one says a word. Uh, I think it has to do with political courage. So, you know, they, that Inflation Reduction Act contained a lot of very good things. People wanted it to pass, or at least, you know, a lot of people wanted it to pass. And, you know, this was the price of that. Um, uh, and Joe Manchin or whoever suggested that jurisdiction stripping provision didn't want the courts kind of getting in the way of the political bargain. Now, you know, a cynic would say, well, that's a that's a pretty bad use of the jurisdiction stripping provision. Actually, you know, I've done some thinking about that. I'm not so sure that's a terrible use of the jurisdiction stripping provision. Um, a political bargain gets made, and sometimes political bargains are important. They're necessary to kind of propel policy forward. Um, the, 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 the parties to that political bargain didn't want the courts upsetting it. And, you know, to a certain extent, because I am a small D Democrat, and I want to emphasize that small D Democrat. I, I believe that in the long run, the, the the surest guarantor of a decent, constructive society and political culture is is not judicial view, is not constitutional rights, is in fact democracy, a healthy, vibrant democracy. Um, so, as someone who believes that, I typically like political bargains. I, I, I think that most things that get done that are worth doing involve some kind of compromise. And I, I typically don't love courts kind of intervening in them. Um, so, you know, looking at that, I, I'm generally okay with it. 
Now, you know, why don't they use it for um, gun control? Or why don't they use it for campaign finance reform? Why don't they use it for any one of a, you know, a dozen things? Abortion, gay rights. Um, great question. Uh, I think it has partially to do with the disbelief when you talk to most people that um, you could, in fact, circumvent the Supreme Court. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and that I think is just pernicious. I, I would love to dispel that disbelief if I possibly could. So often when I point to these provisions in the Constitution and I say, look, you know, they're there for Congress to use. In fact, Congress has used them. You know, going all the way back to before the Civil War, um, I'm sorry, in the wake of the Civil War in Ex Parte McCardle, when uh, Congress stripped jurisdiction of courts to hear, you know, a claims that a detention of a, of a, anti-reconstruction newspaper editor was illegal. You know, the courts have been aware of this power and they've, they've mostly bowed to it, right? They haven't openly defied it. But even if they did, you know, and this is the point I try to make, a Congress that is determined to strip a court's jurisdiction would or should be a Congress that is determined to discipline courts if they ignore the jurisdiction strip. By disciplining them, I mean cutting their budget, you know, taking away their resources, potentially even impeaching and removing based on resistance of a jurisdiction strip, if, if that's politically possible, since impeachment or removal requires a supermajority. But, you know, defunding the uh, thing that could be done quite easily by comparison, you know, courts should be, if they want to defy a jurisdiction strip, they should be prepared to face consequences. So, yeah, so let's, let's get, you mentioned McCardle and we'll get into that mm -hmm. a little bit. And I want to get into mm -hmm. the, the law here a little bit, just to explain this theory, because I think if you, you mentioned article three, and if right. you read article three, I think it, it's, it's confusing, right? How we, yes. we get to this article three, section two sort of sets out what the judicial power is, the powers that extend to the federal courts. So, you know, for example, they list things like the things that we all know about issues that come up under federal law, yes. uh, uh, diversity jurisdiction, which is claims between people of two different states. And the, the specific wording of it is the judicial power shall extend to all cases and then it lists them off. So mm -hmm. the argument that you make and that the Supreme Court has held in the past, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that that's not self-executing, right? right? That Congress kind of has to legislate and give those powers. Like it's just a menu of options. Can you sort of explain how that works? Yeah. So since the beginning, it's, it's been pretty clear that the explanation in Article 3 of the judicial, judicial power is an explanation of what the judicial power can be, not what it must be. So it, it establishes the outer boundaries of the judicial power. And if you'll notice, the only court that Article Three establishes is the Supreme Court. It doesn't establish mm -hmm. any other court. So in fact, no other court is constitutionally available in, in our country. Um, Congress makes decisions to establish the district courts, the federal district courts, to establish the federal courts of appeals. Everything that kind of is in the judicial hierarchy below the Supreme Court. Congress makes the decision whether to establish those courts and then makes the decision from, you know, the set of issues that can be directed to federal courts, which issues to direct to federal courts. So, for example, you know, uh, the the jurisdiction of the district courts to hear um, criminal cases was quite limited um, for a significant mm -hmm. chunk of American history. And over time, you know, the the that, that jurisdiction was expanded but but again congress picks and it chooses um, what issues from the available menus you put at the options um, it will send to the federal courts that's you know sort of a it's an interesting 
way for them to have written the constitution. Like it's really confusing. And I don't, I don't think yes. people know that. So um, it's an important point. And then you go on in, in section two of article three, and then there's this clause that says the Supreme court shall have appellate jurisdiction with such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make. So your argument is that those exceptions can be pretty much anything. My question is, at what point do the exceptions become the rule, right? Because exceptions means exceptions, right? Like the 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 given is that they're going to be able to have appellate jurisdiction, then you can take away certain things. But if you start to take away, you know, abortion, voting rights, or like a, a whole host of things, does that eventually become no longer, you know, in the spirit of the constitutional design? Yeah, great question. And I guess I have two responses. One is we're not even close, right? So what, yeah. whatever that threshold is, we're not anywhere near it. And Congress could cut out um, categories of jurisdiction without approaching it. Um, the second response that I have is that threshold is really for Congress to determine, not for the courts. So the courts aren't going to be in a position to tell us what exceptions means with specificity, because there's nothing in the Constitution that defines it with specificity. This, right. I think, you know, this observation generalizes one of the real problems with our form of judicial review in the United States is that we have a pre-modern constitution, a pre-modern constitution that speaks, as some people say, in majestic generalities. I don't think they're too majestic. I think, I think they're just very <laughs> general. And the, what that does, and you know, the anti-federalists pointed this out at the founding, that, sh that if abused, basically frees judges to mold the society to any shape they choose, right? And that, that is the worry you know, more than 200 years ago that the anti-federalists had about the nature of judicial review with a very general constitution. That worry, I think, has proven to be true. That is the problem. So, you know, with respect to what an exception is, I mean, I, I think I know in, in very general terms what an exception is. It's something that isn't the rule. Precisely what the threshold is, is something that I don't think is susceptible to judicial determination. I, I want Congress to be making that decision. So let's let's get into the, 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 the key case here, the elephant in the room, which is yeah. ex parte McCardle, right? And you yes. kind of touched on it before. And generally speaking, correct me if I'm wrong, in that case, Congress um, removed the Supreme Court's jurisdiction over denial of habeas petitions. You know, for those right. who don't know, a habeas claim is just a claim to challenge your allegedly unlawful detention um, for yes. some reason. And the Supreme Court held that that strip of jurisdiction was okay. You know, we're talking about taking big issues, you know, abortion, voting rights, Second Amendment issues away from the Supreme Court. You know, you could distinguish those from habeas, right? These are these are mm -hmm. constitutional challenges. And I guess you could say in ex parte McCardle, the, the underlying claim was a constitutional one that his due process rights are being violated. It's about as big um, as they come. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So is there a way to distinguish that case? Because, you know, you imagine this this issue comes up to the Supreme Court and we have six justices that are going to go right for the distinguishing factor, right, and try to overturn right. this case. So why, why, as a matter of precedent, um, is this, are these exceptions allowed? It doesn't say exceptions for particular cases. It doesn't say exceptions for habeas and not for, let's say, campaign finance, um, it says exceptions. But I, I want to resist this entire way of thinking about this issue because mm -hmm. this is, in a sense, whether Congress has control 
of the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court or of any of the federal courts is a is an issue that kind of transcends the typical discussion about judicial review. So if Congress takes up this idea of controlling the court's power, of controlling judicial power by using the jurisdiction stripping mechanism that the Constitution gives it, the courts that the, the Congress has to be willing, essentially, to enforce that. In other words, we're going to strip jurisdiction. We believe the con- that the Constitution gives us this power. And we're not allowing you, federal courts, to determine the ambit of that power. We are using it, right? And if you defy us, we will pack you, we will defund you, we will punish you, we will discipline mm-hmm. you, right? That is, I think, the normal byplay between the branches when one branch basically wants to check another. They, they find a way to limit the power of the other. You know, it's, it's only the judiciary in our system, the anti-federalists said, that is not checked by the other branches. And that, the anti-federalists said, is dangerous, that the judiciary is, in fact, a dangerous branch. And I think the anti-federalists on this point, as on many points, were correct. They, they, were, they were closer to the truth than the federalists were on this point, for sure. So, you know, we need a check on the judiciary. And... I think the Constitution gives Congress that check. The only question really is a question not so much of legality, but of political will. Because if Congress has the political will to use the check and they have the political will to enforce it through some sort of sanctions, if it's avoided, rejected, abused, then I think ultimately the courts will have to bow. But, you know, whether we're going to get there or not is is a really interesting question. Well, let me just chime in here and ask. The originalist uh, on the courts would ask you if if this check existed in the Constitution then, why would the anti-federalists not recognize it as such back then if this was such a powerful check on the courts? I mean, you have to ask the anti-federalists, I would, and they're not around <laughs> to answer. But I, I think, you know, to me, um, the anti-federalists were making polemical points about the structure of this government, and they, they correctly saw that the courts were going to be a problem. The federalists were making polemical points about the structure of this government. So, you know, Hamilton said in Federalist 78, he said, so the courts have, you know, judicial review is really just about um, reading words. The courts, you know, um, have no will, right? They have only judgment. And of course, mm-hmm. that's a ridiculous way to think about constitutional interpretation, um, it's hard to take it seriously today. So, you know, you might as well just ask the Federalists, like, why they were so stupid to think that, you know, the courts were going to be like reading text and enforcing clear text when the text wasn't written in a way that was susceptible to that reading. You know, the the truth is, I wouldn't blame either the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists. I don't think either of them were stupid. I think they were very smart, but they were playing a political game. And they, they realized that they were trying to convince state legislatures, either to ratify or not to ratify the new constitution, they weren't that interested in telling the whole truth, right? Right. They were interested in winning. Um, So I think, you know, the originalists, one of the reasons I'm not an originalist is that, 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 that interpretive theory is so naive. I mean, it's, it's, it's naive about motivations. It's naive about, you know, how you can translate texts from so long ago to contemporary political debates today. There's a whole bunch of problems with it. This is just one of those problems. 
We agree. We've spent many episodes <laughs> talking about it, but I figured yeah. I figured it would be good to pose it. I, I did want to ask one more question, given you're, you're positing that we could use or the Congress could use these other sort of budgetary weapons um, and, and impeachment if it came to that as sort of punishment to enforce a jurisdiction strip. Yeah. What happens and do you think it's possible that somebody in the Article Three branch could then bring some sort of a, an action to determine whether the jurisdiction strip is actually lawful if they have, you know, if they're not getting paid, right? That seems like an actual harm that they could maybe make a claim um, on. Yeah. So, so one of the things, so the Constitution says you can't really cut the salaries of judges, right? So um, I don't think it wouldn't be that they're not getting paid. I think, for example, it wouldn't be that their rent is getting paid or, you know, in other words, the Supreme Court occupies that fake Greek temple in D.C. They could be in a strip mall and rested, you know, pretty quickly um, if Congress just so decided. You know, and by the way, I, I'm kind of not really kidding about that because years ago when I spent a year clerking for the Constitutional Court in South Africa, and the Constitutional Court in South Africa at that point was in a in a in a business park in a suburb of Johannesburg, and it was just fine. Actually, they have a new building now, and it's a very lovely building, but that. That court functioned very well in a in a you know a set of offices in a regular business park, and to some degree, you know, the grandiosity of that building sends the wrong message. Um, and the Supreme Court should be in much more modest digs. They spent the early years the Supreme Court in the basement of the Capitol, and they could well go back there. So I, I, I love it. I I do think that you know Congress has complete control over their budget. I can't imagine a constitutional claim that would prevail that, for example, the Constitution mandates some allocation to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, you can file any lawsuit you want. Uh, I can't right. imagine it succeeding. I agree with everything you're saying right there. All these, like you said, it's it's a, it's a an issue of political will and not, not legality. And that's sort of where I start to part with the jurisdiction stripping advocates a little bit because, and this is the reason that we initially started talking, which is if it's an issue of political will and not legality, why not just go to, you know, cutting their budget, packing the court? Because, you know, I agree it's not an issue of legality, but it's going to be, right? It's going to be challenged and they're going to be able to opine on it. So why even go through the exercise of something that that just lends them the opportunity to strike it down? Why not just treat it as the issue of power that it is and go straight to packing the court or cutting their budget and putting them in the basement? So great question. And, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about this. And I do think jurisdiction stripping is an incredibly valuable approach to take because it works in service of a much deeper point. It, it, it helps to solve a much deeper problem, which is this. We live in a constitutional democracy, right? But those words, constitutional and democracy, are in tension with one another, right? Constitutionalism limits the democratic choices that we as the living are free to make. Constitutionalism and judicial review in particular is the practice of the dead exerting control over the living. I generally think that we should have much less of that than we do, that we, we need to develop a stronger democracy and a less strong kind of form of judge-driven constitutionalism. Um, so if you believe that, if, if that's your perspective, way constitutional democracy should work, then jurisdiction stripping is appealing because it gives the living a way to prevail over the dead. 
Court packing doesn't do that, right? So what does court packing do? It, it basically reinforces that the courts are the decision makers. And what we really care about is we just want the decisions that we want. We, we, but we, those decisions still come from the courts, right? So we're, we're reinforcing, I think, a, a dynamic that is very unhealthy. Ending life tenure. So I am very much in favor of ending life tenure. I, I think it is quite complementary to judicial reform efforts generally. I think it's a, it's a, it should be an uncontroversial issue. Uh, the problem is to end life tenure meaningfully, you probably need a constitutional amendment, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't need a constitutional amendment to do jurisdiction stripping. You just need political will, which is, you know, uh, something that, you know, we have enough trouble coming up with. Um, so I, I think of the options on the table, I like jurisdiction stripping for its what the message it sends about how we should run constitutional democracy with a, with a, with a thumb on the side of democracy. And I also like it because once you pierce through the mythology of judicial review, the idea that courts are inevitably the final decision makers, that is not in our constitution, by the way, that, that is a... I think a very sad detour that our culture has taken, that we've put so much responsibility on lawyers for determining how society works rather than voters. Um, once we pierce that mythology, I think jurisdiction stripping looks like a normal incident of how democracy should work. I want to get into that point a little bit more about what you call judicial supremacy, yeah. which is this idea that you were just talking about that the courts are the ones who have the final say and our elected representatives are kind of below them on the totem pole. So mm -hmm. what you're really talking about here is flipping that balance that saying that our elected representatives who also take an oath to defend the constitution, right. Are really yeah. the ones that are going to get the final say. And I think this makes people uncomfortable, but can you explain why it, it's not inevitable that it'd be this way, right? Because it's just sort of like we're we're younger people, like we grew up in this world where every you know you pass a healthcare bill, it goes to the Supreme Court. But it's not inevitable that it ends up that way, right? No, it's not inevitable at all. So if you look in the Constitution, there is no institution of judicial review that appears explicitly, right? There, there's no part of the Constitution that says judges have the power to strike down democratically enacted laws. That is absent. Now, there are those that argue that you might infer that power from the Constitution. And that is, I mean, that's an argument that I actually don't disagree with. I actually agree with that argument. The question is, infer it on what grounds and to what extent? That's always the question. So in the Constitution, quite explicitly, is the exceptions clause, which allows Congress to make exceptions from the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. In the Constitution, not 100% explicitly, but more or less by necessary implication that we've all agreed upon since the beginning, is Congress's power to create or not to create lower federal courts, its power to extend jurisdiction to them up to the jurisdictional maximum, or its power to withhold jurisdiction. That, that has been in, that's an institution as old as the Republic. That's an understanding as old as the Republic. Okay? First Judiciary Act, 1789 basically withheld a whole bunch of jurisdiction that could have been granted to the lower federal courts. Okay, so given that situation, I think we have, in fact, in front of us, the option to structure judicial review, either to be incredibly powerful and pervasive like it is now, or to structure judicial review with limits to make it less powerful, less pervasive, less 
of a force that interferes with our democracy. We have the option. We're not bound. We have the choice, you know, the terrible responsibility of choice, but nonetheless, the choice. And I think given what we've seen in the last 30 years, which is a coordinated campaign by one political party to capture the federal judiciary for partisan purposes, and to be perfectly honest, a reaction from the other political party, which is, you know, we wish to capture the federal judiciary for partisan purposes. Like, look at what they've accomplished. We wish to accomplish the same thing on our behalf. Uh, That is a poisonous political situation and very perilous for the country in the long run. Given the situation we're in, I have a hard time imagining why we would not want to really roll back judicial review to, to deny either political party the federal judiciary as a prize, as a political prize that can be used to essentially run the country without the need to get democratic assent for the things that you want to do. Yeah, this this is where I struggle, though, because are we misidentifying the problem by saying it's the concept of judicial review rather than the capture of the institutions by one political party? Because, you know, if I think about like judicial review in a way that would work, like there would be a lot of judicial restraint. The judges themselves would just say, we're not going to opine and, and insert ourselves into every situation. Obviously, that's not what the court does now. But if the Democrats were to take control and have a majority on the court, that is sort of where we would be, right? Like, I, I don't think that Democrats want to retake the courts to do the opposite of what the Republicans are doing. It's to undo the harm that they've done, right? And to sort of yeah. let the to let the Congress like play more of a role and do what the you know the majority wants to do. So, are we are we are we misidentifying the problem by saying that it's judicial review rather than the people that happen to be in charge of the court right now? So I'm I'm much more skeptical. So I, I think that Democrats are not judicial minimalists. Republicans are not judicial minimalists. So when Democrats were appointing people to the courts in large numbers, you know, the courts were making policy. They were making policy um, willy-nilly, and they were doing it in a way that the left liked. And then the right, of course, set out to change that situation, and they did. So, so for example, um, I am very pro-choice. I think that Roe was wrongly decided. I don't think the Supreme Court guarantees a right to privacy. I don't think that, I'm sorry, the Constitution guarantees a right to privacy that that reaches to the right to make a decision about abortion. This isn't because I don't think um, uh, uh, a, a pro-choice abortion policy is desirable. I think it's extremely desirable, but I just don't think the Constitution gets to that. Um, and I, I think, you know, the reaction on, on the rights part had a germ of truth to it. Like this is judicial overreaching. Now, the sad thing is this was not a principled reaction. Like we want to end judicial overreaching. This was a political reaction. We want to overreach, you know, on on behalf of our constituency. And this is exactly what they've done. I don't think American politicians have the virtue to actually construct a restrained kind of fair and federal judiciary. Um, I don't think politicians should be expected to have that virtue. I think politicians basically want to have their preferences enacted. And if they can't enact them democratically, they will enact them through the courts. I think that's what we've seen. That's the history, um, yeah. that the relevant history. So I think the way to prevent that is to defang judicial review, to, to create a situation where judicial review does not run the society, right? Where 
Our decisions about campaign finance are not driven by the courts. Our decisions right. about reproductive rights are not driven by the courts. Our decisions about gun policy are not driven by the courts. They're driven mostly by democratic action with maybe some outer limits being enforced by the courts. That is, you know, a Thayerian model of judicial review, just to put James Bradley Thayer, um, a famous constitutional scholar, wrote 100 plus years ago a, a, a book and a series of articles where he laid out a, a kind of um, template for judicial review, a kind of minimalist template where, you know, courts give a, a, a very wide margin of appreciation to democratic action and they intervene to overturn democratically enacted laws only when there is no reading of the Constitution that can be squared with what's been done, where there's an irreconcilable variance between what the Congress has done and what the Constitution commands. And that, by the way, is what Matt, uh, uh, what Hamilton said in Federalist 78. He said that, you know, where the, the two things are irreconcilable, judges have um, uh, a duty to step in. Um, that is not how judicial re review works today. Think of like the concepts that are bootstrapped out of nowhere by our current court, like the major questions doctrine, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says this. This is kind of a bootstrap built on an extrapolation, built on a penumbra, right? They're doing exactly the kind of like, you know, making it up on the fly that they accused the left of doing when the left was in control of the federal courts. And, you know, I, I don't know why anyone should be surprised by that. I think some of, too, what you're saying is borne out in, in the, you know, political unfolding after Dobbs, right? You've seen states that you would expect to fall on the political spectrum of the rights anti-abortion rhetoric go completely the other way, rejecting referendums, banning abortion, electing pro-choice governors, people speaking through their votes and legislating that policy that, as you note, is a great policy. It's just not necessarily something that comes out of the Constitution. Is there a way that you think, I know you're a, a, a law professor, not a politician, but yes. how do politicians yes. sort of, right, yet, take this jurisdiction stripping, which is a bit of a mouthful uh, to explain to people and make it something potent, uh, sort of understandable by the masses, I think, because there's a lot of value in this, in in returning power to the voters and law, law creation to the voters. But I think it's something that's a little bit hard for the average citizen to understand if they're not, you know, familiar with ex parte McArdle and, and the history here. So, you know, I actually think there's no formula that is going to magically you know, make the American public aware of how this works. I think it requires patience and it requires a sustained political campaign, which I haven't seen the Democrats yet be willing to mount. But, you know, look, um, I tend to think that people are pretty smart on the whole, even if, you know, they're, they're, they're not paying attention all the time if their political leaders try to make an issue salient to them and they invest capital trying to explain it and they act on it and they talk about it, over time, people absorb, you know, these messages. Um, so, you know, what I wish, if the Democrats are upset with the direction of the Supreme Court, what I wish they would do is I wish they would start trying to pass bills that include jurisdiction stripping provisions. So I, I would pick something very, popular. So I would say, we're going to pass a bill that bans assault weapons. That's extremely popular, right? And we are going to 
strip the federal court's jurisdiction and the state courts for that matter to hear claims challenging the constitutionality of this ban on assault weapons. And I would explain to them, it's like, we're going to do this. We're going to make this policy choice and we're going to make this policy sure this policy choice sticks because we think the Supreme Court's Second Amendment jurisprudence is basically made up of whole cloth. It's, it's, it's sham originalism. It's selective, politicized originalism. And we're going to put a stop to this. We're going to put a stop to right-wing judges trying to run this country from the bench, right? Now, this isn't going to prevail immediately because this is going to run up against the wall on both the left and the right of you know, this mythology of judicial review. And to dismantle a mythology takes time and effort and patience. But you have to start somewhere. And, you know, pick pick an issue. I think assault weapons would be a great issue. Explain the problem. I think people are aware of this, right? Yeah. Think of all the school shootings and, and mass killings and explain the problem. Explain how the courts are implicated in the problem, right. how they help create this insanity that we're surrounded by and propose to do something about it. I think over time, these ideas will sink in. Yeah, and I think I think I think also like just what we're doing here, right? Like you wrote a, a law review article about this. Like I think people underestimate the extent to which just like putting these things in the public sphere and just like having people like talk about them. Like the idea that the individual mandate wasn't allowed under the Commerce Clause, right. like at a time was considered ridiculous. Like the independent state legislature theory, it was like used to be considered ridiculous. And these things just become real because people just talk about them. Like law professors talk about them and and make arguments and and they become part of the public debate. So I totally agree with you. I think it just needs to be pushed out there. Are there are there areas where it can be sort of deployed that would be less, you know, a political fireball than putting it in an assault weapons ban or in a voting rights bill? I agree with you. We should do that. But are there can you maybe like start by, you know, stripping jurisdiction over you know, statutory challenges or like agency review. Do those provisions exist already? And, yeah, so, and, so, right. Yeah. So there are statutes that strip jurisdiction over, for example, habeas in the anti, uh, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And so th- there's a history of this. But if, if you want to start somewhere, you know, look, our healthcare system, okay, 17% of the economy now, I mean, there's <laughs> an enormous amount of yeah. our economy, um, extremely screwed up. So we spend twice as much per capita on healthcare as pretty much any other country. And we get increasingly worse results. So life expectancy in this country is actually declining, which is in one of the most affluent countries in the world, kind of an insane fact. Mm. Um, we, we have enormous structural problems in the healthcare industry that we need to address and we need to make sure that the courts stay out. So in 2011, I wrote an article in Slate uh, called First Do No Harm, which was an article about healthcare reform where I said, you know, so Obamacare is going to change, you know, the way uh, healthcare markets are organized. The courts are going to get involved. And here's why the courts should stay out, right? And in that article, again, short article in Slate, I basically said that the Constitution really says nothing. The Constitution says nothing about the, about individual mandates um, uh, to buy insurance. Um, That is not something that you can extrapolate from the Constitution. Um, And um, where courts don't have a solid ground to intervene, they should really just stay out. 
Now, at the time, I got a lot of pushback from a lot of uh, academics on the left, right? Saying, hmm. you know, aren't you really disempowering judges? And my answer was, yes, I am. I'm a small D Democrat before I am, you know, on the left or whatever. Like my, my first attachment isn't to any particular outcome. It's to democratic processes and the, the dignity of democracy for, 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 for citizens. That's my first attachment. And like the, my, my, my substantive political commitments come a distant second. So for me, this makes Perfect sense. And I do think, and again, you know, these are these things are hard to prove mathematically, right? But I do think that over time, the best security for a decent society that addresses human needs effectively is a vibrant democracy, is a culture of democracy, a commitment to democracy, a, a, a citizenry that sees its power to make change and uses it, right? For, for, for the right or the left or whatever, but, but really uses it. And that, that I think, I still think that is an appealing way to think about you know, human life. And over time, uh, if the Democrats or the Republicans for that matter, um, were pushing that understanding of constitutional democracy, it, it, would, it would be appealing and popular, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's finish up on that point and zoom out a little bit because you know we just came out of law school recently, and like this idea of, of judicial supremacy, as you say it, is like it's just so pervasive that judges right. make the law, judges understand the law, and like politicians are doing something separate, right? It's just something different. So, yes. and I think people are finally starting to come around to the view that you know maybe Samuel Alito and John Roberts who never faced the voters shouldn't be the ones making these decisions and are and there should be a, an avenue for voters to express to the public will. So my question is if we're just imagining a, a, an ideal system, like if you're imagining your ideal system, I think people just get uncomfortable the idea that the constitution would essentially be rendered unenforceable by the courts, right? Like it's because that's sort of what we're talking about here, right? Is that the that our elected representatives say something and then that's sort of it. So what role do the courts play in your ideal society? What role is yeah. left for the courts? And just how does this what does this look like? And are there other examples elsewhere of other systems that look more appropriate? Okay, so th this is an incredibly important question. And I just want to say the idea that it's black and white, that we either have the kind of judicial review we have, or we have complete legislative supremacy and no rights, that kind of thinking is just not in touch with reality. And how do I know that? I look north, okay, to Canada. <laughs> Canada has in its constitution something called the notwithstanding clause, which allows not only the Canadian parliament, but a provincial legislature to override with a with a simple majority vote to override a holding by a Canadian court that some uh, enactment violates the Constitution. So we have in Canada today, and have had since the Charter was inaugurated, more or less precisely what I'm talking about in the United States with you know Congress's control over federal courts and state courts' jurisdiction. So. Is Canada like a hell of no rights of legislative <laughs> supremacy? No, it's not. And why not? 
because people aren't stupid, right? People have a sense that a constitutional democracy requires some structure and, and some power of courts to intervene in productive ways to, to make sure that, you know, politics stays within certain lanes. But in Canada, I think at the same time, the existence of the notwithstanding clause and that awesome power of the legislature that is hanging over everything also disciplines the courts and makes sure that they stay within certain lanes. So what I would like to do in the United States is establish that kind of mutual checking, right, that we have already in Canada. Now, you know, I happen to think that the Constitution creates that in the United States. And the, 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 the real question is whether Congress will actually wield it in ways that establish this new equilibrium. What's the new equilibrium? Well, if I'm a politician appointing, I'm a president appointing people to the court, and I realize that, you know, there's limits to what I can accomplish appointing people to the court because the Congress has the power to check me by removing jurisdiction in a particular instance, that tempers my willingness to invest a ton of political capital in seizing control of policymaking through the courts, right? So that is the, the kind of gentle, but I think very important nudge that I'm trying to provide to steer our constitutional democracy toward balance. This kind of all or nothing thinking, it's like either we have courts run amok controlling everything, or we have legislatures run amok controlling everything. I actually just don't think that describes reality. When I was in my free time, since I'm, since I'm kind of a loser, I was looking at <laughs> the, uh, the history of judicial review and just like the number of laws that have been held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court over time. And the interesting thing is that right after Marbury versus Madison, which established judicial review, they didn't use they didn't really use it for a long time right. again. And it was right. like a very rare thing. So I, I I think you're you're absolutely right that we just have to sort of get away from this thinking that this system is inevitable and because you know, just in this country alone, like it, it wasn't always this way. Correct. It wasn't. And look, it doesn't have to be, right? This this is not the only way to run a constitutional democracy. We have lots of examples from around the world of systems that more capably balanced judicial power of legislative power. And I think we can, we can, we the living take the responsibility to kind of nudge us back toward that balance. That is, that is something that jurisdiction stripping uh, is, is, is a, I think at the end of the day, a useful tool to help us to do. Power to the living. What a crazy concept. What a crazy concept. Well, (laughs) well, one thing you've done here is you've, You've proven yourself right on the idea that talk just talking about jurisdiction stripping, it brings you to this whole concept, this whole idea of thinking about our, our system completely differently in a way that's really healthy, in a way that court packing kind of doesn't. So I think on that score, you've kind of you've kind of convinced me. You know, I, I just think that there is a, a generation of of young people who are feeling a bit hopeless and conversations like these make them feel more hopeful. And so I, I'm glad to have learned something new about jurisdiction stripping today. And, that, you know, all is not lost. There are ways that we can, within the confines of our own system, fix some of the things that are going wrong in this country. So thanks for joining us. This was this was awesome. Yes. My pleasure. I really appreciate uh, you guys having an interest in this issue. It's, it's a fascinating one for me. Well, we will keep in touch and thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>